You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So if you're visiting with us, we started a new series last week, and the good news is I'm going to do a little bit of review before we get into the text. Uh, In your worship guide that we really should call like a weekly magazine at this point, Um, it's fantastic. Uh, Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 through 46 is on page 9 in your worship guide. It's also going to be on the screens here. We're going to read through this text together, and then we're going to do a little bit of review Uh, And then we're going to keep moving forward. So these are the words of Jesus. The context of this text matters. We don't have a lot of time to rehash that again, but we're going to spend time in this text for the next several weeks, so we'll know this text inside and out, context and all. But I'd like for you to keep in mind the language. This is royal language. This is political language. It's kingdom language. When it's kingdom language, it's political language. And when I say political, I don't mean American politics. I mean kingdom of God politics, the way we're governed. That's what politic is, the governance, the governance of God's people. So the politic of this is present. The politic is that the Son of Man has come as glory. Son of Man is a royal language out of the Hebrew Scriptures, mostly from Daniel. It is a language of power. It is a language of royalty. It is a language of might. And that's the text. Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. The nations will be. And he will separate them one from another, just as shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you a stranger and take you in? Or without clothes and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Let's read this together. Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did to me. Then he will also say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't take me in. I was naked, and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you didn't take care of me. And then they will answer too and say, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? And then he will answer them. Let's read it together. Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do to me. And they will go away into eternal punishment of the righteous to eternal life. Now, last week when we began this series, we opened up with a handful of wisdom. We looked at the witness of the early church. The name of the series is Withness is Our Witness, that Christ is with 
the least, last, left out, and lonely. And when we are with the least, last, left out, and lonely, we are with Christ. And when we are with Christ, we should be with the least, last, left out, and lonely. And that withness becomes our witness. And we looked at the witness, the testimony, the embodied way of life, the way the early church was known and understood in its society. And so I want to recap for a minute. Aristides who was an Athenian philosopher who was converted to Christianity in about 117 to 138 AD, wrote a letter to Roman Emperor Hadrian to describe the church. And if you remember, here's what it said. Christians love one another. They never fail to help widows. They save orphans from those who would hurt them. If a man has something, he gives freely to the man who has nothing. If they see a stranger, Christians take him home and are happy as though they were a real brother. They don't consider themselves brothers in the usual sense, but brothers instead through the Spirit of God. And if they hear that one of them is in jail or persecuted for professing the name of the Redeemer, they will all give him what he needs. If it is possible, they bail him out. If one of them is poor and there isn't enough food to go around, they fast several days to give him the food he needs. This is really a new kind of person. There's something divine in them. This is the description of the early church. Loving your immigrant, your neighbor, your stranger, the imprisoned, doing justice, social justice, working toward imprisonment, those weren't, those weren't issues of con- contention for the early church. Those were issues of confession. It's just like the Latin uh, and, or the African church father, Tertullian, said in his own witness, as Christians began to serve the hungry, poor, and sick, and outsiders, and do good and mercy and justice, he said this, it is our care of the helpless, our practice of love and kindness that brands us in the eyes of our opponents. Like I said last week, it wasn't the right arguments that they made. It wasn't the truth that they spoke. Truth doesn't matter if it's not embodied truth. And it's not true at all if it's not practiced truth. It's just rhetoric. There's a difference. And the early church embodied their own confession. There was a truthiness to their truth because of their witness. This wasn't political. Actually, it was very political. It was kingdom of God political. It was the politics of the kingdom of God. That's what it was. And so in a society where the church was persecuted and pushed aside, considered agnostic and strange and peculiar, Tertullian says, it's our care of the helpless. The helpless. Those who couldn't help themselves for whatever reasons. It's a practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of our opponent because they took seriously the summons of Matthew 25 when Jesus said, whatever you've done for the least of these, you've done what? To me, not for me, to me. The least of these. Now, you got to think through what that term means. We talked about it last week. It's the worst of the worst. So, the, like the worst of the imprisoned, the worst of the hungry, the worst of the thirsty, the worst of the sick, the, word, the, 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 the most disposed, the most despised, the most pushed aside. It's the least of these. So, Jesus didn't say the good investments. Jesus didn't say whatever you did for those, you know, that was fairly easy to help. This was deeper than that. And this just wasn't a debate. And it is confounding to me that Christians debate this. 
And maybe Christians debate it because all we can do is talk about it because we're not doing it. This is the wisdom of God, Proverbs 19.17. And I told you how when we do a three-restoration training, I have everybody try to memorize this before they leave. So let's read it together. Kindness to the poor is a loan to the Lord, and he will give a reward to the lender. Let's say that again. Kindness to the poor is a loan to the Lord, and he will give a reward to the lender. So when you and I are kind to those living in poverty, and we think we're giving money to the man flying a sign on the corner of Monticello, on the corner of like where, where the Lord's chicken is, where Chick-fil-A is, and Monticello and all that, um, the Holy Spirit's chickens at Popeye. The Lord's chickens is at, uh, at Chick-fil-A. Like, we good? Like, heaven doesn't claim KFC, all right? I'm just saying, like, that's not, that's not where that goes. But right there, when you give money to a man who's flying a sign, and you say you're just giving it to him, and you're wondering, is he going to drink it away? Is he really this? Is he really that? What does this say? Kindness to the poor is what? Alone to the Lord, and he'll what? And whatever you've done to the least of these, and no matter how least you think this person is, you've done what? We're given to Jesus. My job is to do good, do justice, do kindness, do mercy, do compassion, do love, and trust God with the consequences. Ain't nobody need me to be their judge. And as we reflected on this, we learned to see Christ in the pressed down, marginalized, displaced, important. That's what we said. We said we need to learn to see again. We need to relearn to see. In North American Christianity, in United States of America Christianity, where everything's debated and human lives are politicized, where human lives are politicized, where human bodies are politicized. And let me say this real quick. Christians got to stop blaming the media because, man, Christians should be glad we have the media because if we didn't have the media, we'd have nobody else to blame. We'd actually have to look at ourselves and blame ourselves because Jesus is our measuring stick by which we live our lives, not the media. So the media can say what the media wants to say. As long as there's the teachings and the life of Jesus, there's our measuring stick. Does that make sense? We have to live into this embodied reality of our own confession, which means then we have to start learning to see different. We have to see Christ in the broken, Christ in the poor, Christ in the displaced, Christ in the disposable. We have to see Christ in the bodies of the people that we are told are not worthy enough. And make no mistake, we are. If we're going to be Christians... And so we learn that Christ is with the last least left out and lonely. And if we want to know where Christ can be found, then look to the margins. To see Christ and the last least left out and lonely and to welcome and serve them is to welcome and serve the Christ. And as we learn to see the withness of Christ and the last least left out and lonely, we become faithful witnesses of Christ's presence in the world, but we must be with them too. Withness has to become our witness. And just as Jesus said, whatever you've done for the least of these you've done to me, Jesus also said the hard thing. He said, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. And so when we do not do for the least of these, whatever the do is, we are not doing to Christ. 
And this too is the wisdom of God. Because Proverbs says, in Proverbs chapter 14, 31, whoever oppresses, everybody say oppresses. Notice it didn't say don't just give. Whoever looks at the systems that press people down, that's what the word oppression means. It means pressed down, bent down by something outside of themselves. Whoever looks at the systems that press people down, whoever oppresses, whoever is complicit to the systems that oppress, whoever oppresses a poor man, what? Insults his maker. But he who is generous and needy to the needy, what? Honors him. Why? Because whatever you've done to the least of these, what? You've done to me. All right, that's the introduction. <laughs> it is. Like, I'm on page three of six, so we, we're good. I'm halfway there. So the witness of, and of, of the witness of the church, the early church, is important. So there's a lot of things we could think. We could say, okay, so how did, like, what motivated this kind of radical hospitality, generosity, and compassion? Like, what motivated the to Christians to be this way? Was it just duty? Did they feel like this was their obligation, that this is what they were supposed to do? What, what could motivate them to such a faithful presence where there was kind of witness with those who were suffering from the unjust systems and circumstances in society that's held captive to the reign of sin and death? Could it be duty? Could it be, could it be mere obedience? Could it be fear? Were they afraid of the judgment of God if they didn't? Could it be as simple and as obvious as love? Could that have been it? Is it just that they, they loved people? Well, to, to, to try to answer some of that question, I wanted to look at the Corinthian text for a minute. Uh, so if you have your Bible, 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes this second letter to the Corinthian church at a time when there's famine in Jerusalem. So you need to know the historical context of this letter. So the map up here on the screen will show you. Uh, Jerusalem is undergoing a great famine. And there's just not enough food to go around. Not only that, Jerusalem at this time is overpopulated. And not only that, the Jewish Christians, not only are the Jews and the Christians suffering with the lack of resources in this time, the Jewish Christians are suffering twofold because they've lost their place in society because they pledged their allegiance to the Messiah, who is Jesus. And so now their social networks are, are broken because as Jews, it looks like they've walked away from their religion even though they've walked away, even though they believe they've walked closer to their religion in Christ. And so now the Jewish Christians are not only suffering persecution in their own home, there's also just not enough food to go around and the famine is severe. Now, on the other side of the map is Macedonia. Macedonia is made up of mostly Roman and Greek Christians. These aren't just Jewish. There are some Jewish Christians, but they're by far the minority. It's on the other side of the world. It's half a world away. So you're talking about Philippi and Berea and Thessaloniki. So you're talking about mostly Greek and Roman Christians. And here in Macedonia, there's a lot of unemployment. And this time, there's poverty. There's economic crisis. There's unemployment. And not only is there unemployment, the poverty is so much that history says that this is probably some of the poorest churches in the kingdom of God at this time. And not only that, as if that's not difficult enough, when a Greek or a Roman become a Christian, they're no longer pledging their allegiance or giving worship to the 12 gods of Olympia. Now what they're doing is they pledge their allegiance to Jesus. And so if you're a business person and you want to do business within the business society and you have to go to a, a god or a goddess's temple to make an offering to enter into the business society, you can't do that anymore because you're a Christian. So now your social network and your social upward mobility is negated by your confession that Jesus is Lord. Are you with me on the history? In other words, it's complicated. 
And then there's the Corinthian church. The brothers and sisters in Corinth, which if you look, is a little bit down. It's outside, technically, of the Macedonian region. And it's its own little hub, and it's like a metropolitan area. It's like it's, it's, a, it's a hub of economic it's a port city. It's a hub of economic action. And right now in this time, Corinth is booming. But it's a society of self-entitlement. It's a society of rights and entitlements. Does that sound familiar to anybody? This is a society where rights and entitlements are talked about all the time, where self-accomplishment is prided, and where self-attainment is there, and where everything is about upward mobility and got to get what's yours. And this is kind of how Corinth works. And it's booming. So Paul writes them a second letter. The first letter, if you remember, wasn't so kind. Apparently, they got some stuff together, and now they get a second letter. Because apparently, Paul has asked these Corinthian Christians to give to the Jewish Christians. Because the Jewish Christians are struggling. They're hungry. They're in poverty, and they're starving. And Jerusalem is in trouble and so he writes a letter, and he asked them long ago, apparently, to give. And apparently, Corinth eagerly agreed to give. The Corinthian churches said, yes, we'll do that. We'll take up offerings, and we will take care of. In the name of solidarity and the Christ who is with the least of these, we will give. But they didn't, and a year has gone by. And so Paul writes this letter, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God granted to the churches of Macedonia. During a severe testing by oppression or pressure, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed into the wealth of their generosity. I testify that on their own, according to their ability and beyond their ability, they begged us insistently for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints and not just we had hoped. So at this point in his letter, Paul says, y'all know, y'all have heard about what's going down in Macedonia. You know what's going down in Jerusalem. And when the Macedonian Christians found out that the Jerusalem Christians were starving, they begged us to let them be a part of it. And I imagine Paul saying, no, 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 y'all take care of each other. Y'all got to take care of each other. And they were like, no, 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 no. We take care of each other. And we must give. And they begged out of their poverty and the oppressive pressure that they feel in their world. They begged that they could give just something. Because when a lot of things come together, it makes a big something. There's nothing too small, beloved. Nothing too small. And so he says, they begged us to give. They had received grace to live, and they had received enough grace to give. Even in the face of unemployment and poverty, God's grace was tangible and so real to them that they had to give. Their sense of withness with their Jewish Christian brothers and sisters was their witness, and that is exactly why Paul is using them as an example. And so he goes on in verse 6. So he urged Titus that just as he had begun, so he should also complete this grace to you. Now, as you excel in everything, he's writing to the Corinthians, in faith and speech and knowledge and diligence and in all love for us, in your love for us, excel also in this grace. It's like Paul is saying, look, you guys have your doctrine right, you have your teaching right, you have your faith, you, you have your place, you take care of the apostles well, you take care of the preachers well, 
So just now, now do this. Excel in this. Verse 8. I'm not saying this as a command. You know why he's not saying it as a command? Because Christianity doesn't coerce. Remember how we talked about that? Paul's not coercing them. He is persuading them. He's persuading them to be faithful to their own confession. Because look at what he says. Rather, by means of the diligence of others, I am testing, read it with me, the genuineness of your love. Corinthians probably stood up like, I love the Lord, and I love everybody. I don't know what that song is, but it would be terrible if that were the song. And Paul is saying, I'm testing the genuineness of that. And when you say you love God and you love people, do you? Because love's got to look like something. It has to be embodied, doesn't it, Jen? It has to, has to manifest itself in some sort of actionable way. Jesus said, whatever you did for the least of these, you've done what? To me. Jesus didn't say, however sorry you felt for the least of these, you felt sorry for me. It didn't say kindness to the poor is alone to the Lord. It didn't say, oh, you know, feeling sorry for the, for the poor. It, 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 it's an actionable thing. And Paul says, so I'm writing this. I'm telling you this story of Macedonia, not to shame you and not to even guilt you. But yeah, to call into question the genuineness of your love. You said you loved them a year ago. You said you loved them a year ago. And you didn't do anything about the love, so where's the love? Verse 9, because here's how he anchors it. He doesn't just stop there with some sort of moralism and some sort of dutiful, obedient beatdown. He anchors this in something. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Read it with me. Although he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. He's like, so, I mean, you know, you know what Jesus has done? You know that Jesus is fully God who gave up the treasures and the riches and the splendor and the wealth of heaven so he could give us the treasures, the riches, and the splendor and the wealth of heaven. You know what Jesus has done, who gave up a world where God's vision of shalom was on overdrive, full-on, maximum perfection to enter into a world of corruption and violence and death-dealing injustices. You know that Jesus, who, who did not have to submit himself to anybody because Jesus is God, submitted himself to the least of society, even to state execution on a Roman cross. You know that Jesus gave up everything for a season so you could have everything for eternity. You know that Jesus refused to let you be held captive and enslaved to the reign of sin and death and all of its death-dealing ways of thinking that prideful self-entitlement and right-centered living is the actual way. And he gave it all up for you so that you'd be rescued from the idolatry of the things that he actually had as God. Or to quote Paul literally, you know that he did not consider his equality with God as something to be held on to to his own advantage, but in every way made himself a slave. He emptied himself for you. That's what Paul said. When Paul says, you know that even though he's rich, he became poor so that you could become 
rich. Paul is saying, you know grace, right? You know how God has done for you what you are incapable of doing for yourselves? You know how God is constantly doing for you even what you could do but you choose not to do and God does it anyway because God is a God of grace? You know how God has forgiven you. You know how God has welcomed you into God's life. You know how God has provided for you. You know how every time you prayed for wisdom and you squandered it and you prayed for wisdom again and squandered it and you prayed for wisdom again and squandered it, God just keeps giving. You know the grace of God, don't you? That's what he's saying. See, earlier I posed the question, what could have motivated the early church to be so profoundly present that they would be willing to share in the suffering of the broken? That they refused to not only take a life, but they refused to let a life be taken. What could have compelled the early church to such a profound witness? Did they see Christ in the poor and the least and the last and the left out and the lonely? Yeah, they did. They decided they were going to see the world differently. But what motivated that? It was a deep sense of awareness of the grace of God revealed in the person of Jesus. They knew the stories. They knew the Christ who welcomed the broken that everybody else just wanted to keep breaking. They knew the Christ who healed the lepers who entered into the house to offer a second chance to the Pharisees. See, so over the next several weeks, we're going to look at gospel stories to be reminded again of Jesus. Because too often times when we read the gospels, we want to be the least, last, left out, and lonely in the gospel stories. But too many times, we're not really the least, last, left out, and lonely in the stories. We're the people of privilege, power, and position. In other words, everybody wants to be the prodigal son. Nobody wants to admit they've been the brother. Everybody wants to be the one leper that came back and gave God worship. Not everybody wants to admit it. We've been the nine that just went on about our way. Everybody wants to be the woman at the well who found Jesus at the well. Nobody wants to admit that we've been the, the men and the women talking about the woman at the well. And so it's important. If we're going to understand the grace of God and be challenged and convicted and changed, we have to be willing to see ourselves both in the woman who met Jesus at the well and the people who pushed that woman at the well at noon. We have to be willing to see ourselves, yes, as the prodigal son, but we have to be willing to see ourselves as the brother who whined about the prodigal son getting all the things. We have to be willing to see ourselves, yes, as the one leper who did finally get it and fall at Jesus' feet in worship, but we also have to be willing to see ourselves in the nine who went about our way and just got what was ours. We have to be willing to see ourselves in its fullness if we're going to see the magnitude of the grace of God in Jesus. Otherwise, we just live steeped in our privileged position and power and argue about politics on Facebook and think somehow we've done something for Jesus. While the least of these die the death of a thousand cuts and we just feel good about ourselves. We get to say we're pro-life because we're anti-something. Never meaning any kind of purpose and meaning in the lives of those that live in this world, pressed down by the injustices of this world, we just get to say, well, that's a political problem. That's just not gospel. I was hungry, and you what? Gave me something. I was thirsty, and you gave me something. I was homeless, abandoned, displaced. I was a stranger. I was an immigrant, a foreigner, and you what? You welcomed me in. I was in prison. Jesus didn't even say why. He was just in prison because the why doesn't matter. He was in 
prison and you did what? You visited me. I was sick and you did what? You took care of me. I was naked. I had nothing and you did what? And whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done what? And maybe if Jesus were going on, he would say, because you know what it is I've done for you. You were hungry and I fed you. You were thirsty and I gave you some to drink. You were held captive and imprisoned to the reign of sin and death and I liberated you. You were sick and I healed you. You were naked, exposed, shamed and vulnerable and I covered you up. So Paul finishes and he says, verse 10, but now I'm giving you an opinion. I like that Paul gives opinions in Holy Scripture. Like now I'm giving an opinion on this because it's profitable for you who a year ago began not only to do something but also to desire it, but now finish the task as well. That just as there was eagerness to desire it, so there may be a completion from what you have For if the eagerness is there, it's acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one doesn't have. It it is not there. It is not that there may be relief for others and hardship for you. I want you to listen to this, please. Verse 13, it's not that there may be relief for others and hardship for you, but it is a question of what? Say the word with me. Equality. At the present time, your surplus. At the present time, right now, in this season, he's saying, right now, your surplus is available for their need so that their abundance may also become available for your need, that there may be what? As it is written, the person who gathered much did not have too much, and the person who gathered little did not have too little. In society, there will be haves and have-nots. In society, there will be inequalities and inequities. But in the kingdom of God, those realities of the society in America should be turned on its head in the kingdom of God. That's the witness of the church. And just like Julian the Apostate, the emperor of Rome, who hated Christianity, chided his own priests and reminded them that Christians not only take care of their own poor, but the poor of society as well, so too should be the witness of this church. So over the course of the next several weeks, when we look at these gospel stories, we're going to have what we always have here as a church, opportunities to embody our own confession. And y'all, you know this is who we are. We have the Afghan family coming. We're pleased with the number of families that are participating in the Afghan family partnership. We need more. Please see Bob and Catherine about that. You remember that mother I introduced you to last week with three children, pregnant with one, living in the streets? Remember that woman I told you about? I called us to, you know, being for the things that make for life, which the Afghan family partnership certainly speaks to that. Well, we have partnered with 3E, and we're going to do what it takes to help this mama with her three kids and her child-to-be to to get where she needs to go to be housed and to find herself in stability. We're going to need your money. We're going to need your time. We're going to need your generosity. 
We've been a church that's always spoken to the injustices of the society, whether it's mass violence, whether it's racial injustice. Two Saturdays from now, we're co-sponsoring, we're coming to the table, St. Martin's Episcopal and First Baptist Church to host a conversation on what it means to take on an anti-racist posture in the kingdom of God in a world that's politicized everything. Need you to be there too to learn what that means. You know why? Because these aren't political issues. It's about people. You want to know how much God loves people? You want to know how much God loves any person? He became one. That's how much God loves a person. So as a church, I know to sometimes, I know sometimes, I'm kind of preaching to the proverbial choir because I know that we try to be faithful here. I realize that. And we have been. And I and I'm, praise God for that. But we continue on to accept. We have not by any stretch of the imagination arrived. And God forgive us if we ever get self-righteous and think we have. But also, like... I don't want to see WCC people getting sucked into the time warp of the nonsense in American discourse right now. Like, let's just be about the business and call it a day. Go ahead. Let your inner charismatic out. Because the call of the gospel is that all the poor and the powerless, all the lost and lonely can find welcome at the table of God. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.